Well, this is our annual Pulpit Exchange Sunday. And this Sunday, Pastor Reed is at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church in Hornell. And their pastor, Nathan Rubel, is at Grace Baptist in Dansville. And the pastor at Grace Dansville, Dave Theobald, is here with us. And I'd like to introduce Dave. Uh, He's become a very good friend over the past couple of years as he's been ministering there and really got involved in some of the pastor's fellowships that there are in this area. We have the real delight of visiting down there in Dansville once a month for a a study together. And one of the things that Dave has brought is uh, an insistence, which has become a real joy for us, that we sing some hymns before we get together and and study and after the study go have Chinese food. But uh, (laughs) we're just delighted that that Dave is here and uh, I'd like to welcome him up and have him bring us the word this morning. Good morning. It is a real privilege for me to be here this morning. Uh, My family and I have been looking forward to this for quite some time now. Uh, As uh, Ed said, we are involved in a pulpit exchange, and I have to confess a little bit, that was my idea. That was my idea mainly because I wanted to expose our people to some great preaching. And the reason I'm apologizing is because on this particular Sunday, you guys are the ones paying the price for the fact that (laughs) the other churches are getting some good preaching. Uh, so uh, I really appreciate you sharing your pastor with another church, even after you have been without him for so long. It's really gracious of you as a body. I love your pastor very much. And in the three years since I've moved to Western New York um, and pastored my first church, uh, Reed has been a real uh, father to me in the ministry. And I've also uh, really appreciated the friendship of Ed and, and some of your other men as well. So it's really wonderful for me to be uh, given the opportunity to open the Word of God to you. Now, uh, I've prayed and thought a lot about what I might preach, um, usually in our church, and it sounds like it's the same in your church. We work through a book of the Bible, typically, and so uh, you always know what's coming next. But uh, in the rare occasions when I get the chance to go and preach one sermon somewhere, I get a little bit more freedom to preach whatever I want to preach on. So I was thinking a lot and praying a lot, as I said, over the last number of weeks about what uh, the Lord would have me to share with you. And like many of you, as our brother just mentioned, I have been watching the news lately. I've been reading the headlines. I've been observing our world And I hear all sorts of things. I hear things like this. $16 trillion in debt. And the burden on each taxpayer is about $140,000. There's a fiscal cliff looming, whatever a fiscal cliff is. Tax increases are imminent. 7.9% unemployment. More layoffs in store for Kodak. Health insurance premiums, including my own, up 16% next year. Gridlock in the house. Hurricane Sandy. War in Israel. No more Twinkies. (laughs) And uh, that, that starts to hit pretty close to home, doesn't it? And what about the other stuff close to home? Thanksgiving's on Thursday. Maybe it's at your house. Maybe you're wondering how on earth you're going to get all that needs to be done done in time for all of your family to come over on Thursday. 
Christmas is coming immediately afterward, and uh, you have no idea how you're going to afford all the presents that you have to buy, or at least think that you have to buy. Your kid has just turned 16 years old and starting to drive. Your kid's turned 16 years old and is starting to date. Your kid has turned 16, college is looming, and you don't have an extra 25 grand a year. Your kid just turned 16, and she has not professed faith in Jesus Christ. And there's no, no evidence that she is even the least, least bit interested in the things of the Lord. You've found a lump, and you've received a fateful diagnosis. Now, what do all of these things have in common? It seems to me what they all have in common is that there is a huge potential for any one of these things, let alone the bulk of them together, to throw us into a deep state of anxiety or worry. Huge potential there for any one of these things to do just that. And perhaps even if, as I've gone through this abbreviated list, as I've just rattled off a few things, Maybe you, you can feel, maybe you felt your heart rate start speeding up. Maybe you've uh, experienced your blood pressure skyrocketing. Hope, hopefully none of you uh, experienced numbness and tingling on one side of your body because that's an indication that you might be having a stroke. And uh, I would feel pretty bad if I induced that in you just to make a point. <clears throat> but the fact of the matter is we are worriers. We are an anxious people, and it doesn't take much to make us anxious, even on the best of days. It seems like, though, nowadays there's uh, even more to make us anxious. There's a lot of things these days, it seems, to worry about. And if that's an accurate description of our situation, then the next obvious question is, okay, well, what do we do about it? How should we think about it? Or uh, a, a common question, how then shall we now live? How ought we to act in light of the fact that we are worriers and that we are anxious? And thankfully, the scripture uh, answers these kind of questions. The Lord, in his grace and mercy, has given us all that we need for life and godliness. He's given us his word, so he doesn't leave us just spinning our wheels, scratching our heads, wondering. But he has revealed himself and his will to us in his word so that when we uh, are confronted with it, we would be transformed even as our minds are renewed so that we can think biblically and Christianly about all of these areas of, of life and uh, worry and anxiety in particular. Now, we have uh, in the Bible, I would ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. This is a, another text in addition to the one that was just read. And this is the one I'd like for us to uh, spend the next few minutes looking at. Philippians chapter 4, just a couple of verses here. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. I'll give you a second to find that. Hopefully you will uh, have your Bibles with you and you'll keep them open on your lap so that you can uh, test what I'm saying and see if it is, in fact, the Word of God. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 say this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer 
and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now in this short little text, Paul's packed an awful lot into him. And he's given us, really, the Apostle Paul does, a very simple cure for anxiety and for worry. And uh, since I'm a Baptist preacher, it seems to me that the text just naturally falls open into three different points. And uh, miraculously enough, they all start with the same letter. So uh, this will be our outline. We want to look first at the problem, and secondly, the prescription, and then finally we want to see the product. The problem, the prescription, and then the product. Well, let's look first at the problem. We encounter the problem or the, uh, the issue that Paul is addressing in the very first half of verse 6. It says this, Do not be anxious about anything. So the problem that Paul is addressing today, the problem that we're interested in today, is the problem of anxiousness, anxiety, and worry. But in particular in this verse, the, the word given to us is anxious. And we, gotta be, we need to find out what exactly this word means. It can be confusing, because if we were to look broadly, more broadly in Philippians, we would see that the Apostle Paul uses this word back in chapter 2, verse 20, where he, uh, he uses it positively. In chapter 2.20, Paul uses the very same word to describe Timothy's attitude towards the church in Philippi. He says that Timothy would be genuinely concerned, or the word is actually anxious, for the welfare of the Philippians. So there, Paul uses the word anxious in a good way to commend Timothy and Timothy's attitude towards the church there. Now, on the other hand, to that good kind of anxiousness, and what Paul has in mind here is a negative kind of anxiousness. He's not talking about um, interest, uh, selfless interest in other people. He's talking about a negative kind of anxiety. He's addressing here our problem that we have of worry and anxiety. And this happens when we are unduly concerned about events or people or places or things, situations, when we are concerned about them when we ought not to be concerned about them, when we are absorbed in them in a way uh, in which we should not be absorbed in them. And it is possible, it seems to me, as we talk about this problem of anxiety and worry, there's a couple of different approaches that we could take. We could look at it superficially, or we could look at it deeply. A superficial look at the problem of worry and anxiety would, would recognize with the rest of the world that stress, things like stress and worry and anxiety, are a big problem in our own society. Upwards of 75% of people report living in a, in a constant state of stress or turmoil or, or worry. We would be concerned then to think about how living in that state of stress for so long uh, would have a result in health problems like high blood pressure and sleeplessness and heart disease and all the rest. And if we were taking a superficial look at this problem, we might also recognize that worrying is very inefficient. That is, it doesn't accomplish anything. It's hard work 
it's work that you spend a lot of uh, energy expending at, um, you expend a lot of energy to do, but it doesn't get you anything. It's very, very inefficient. Corey Tenboom, who was a, a Dutch Holocaust survivor, who, uh, if we were to think about her life, humanly speaking, she had a lot that she could worry about. She offered this definition of the problem. She said, worry is a cycle of inefficient thoughts whirling around a center of fear. And this idea of inefficiency, that's also a point that Jesus points out in the scripture that was read for us just a few minutes ago on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 27, uh, Jesus makes this kind of argument. He says, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? And the point is, you can't. Uh, It's inefficient. You can't gain anything. You can't produce anything. The point is that worry is not at all constructive. It can't accomplish anything that we want it to. Now, we could also recognize that the bulk of what we worry about is simply the product of our own imagination. We spend a lot of energy focused on hypothetical situations that, uh, that may or may not ever happen. Mark Twain, that famous author, he once reflected on his life. He looked back on it and he said this, I am an old man and I have known a great many trouble, troubles, but most of them have never happened. And he, and Twain there is reflecting on the fact that um, much of what he, much of the trouble and the strife that he's, into, uh, that he's experienced, he's experienced it only in the theater of his own mind. It's stuff that he, he's imagined. And we do that same thing with worry. Now, we could talk about all this kind of stuff easily for the next uh, half hour. And I don't think I need to tell you that most churches do that kind of thing for a half hour. In fact, as we sweet speak, probably Joel Osteen is preaching this kind of message uh, down in Texas. Uh, it's a superficial look at the problem, and it only has uh, superficial value. But the Apostle Paul, I think, wants us to look at this problem much more deeply than all of that. He wants us to get to the root of it. He wants us to understand what this uh, problem is. And I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul does that by introducing this topic to us in the form of a command. So he says, do not be anxious about anything. That's a command. And we might miss this. In fact, we often miss this because oftentimes when we give advice to someone who's worrying, we we say like, hey man, don't worry about it. And and we we offer like a light-hearted word of encouragement and our Um, our advice to them is in keeping with how deep we think the problem is. We don't think it's that big of a problem, so we don't offer that big of a solution. And uh, we really we we fail to understand a lot of time the severity of this problem. The very fact that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is issuing us a command not to worry indicates very clearly that for the Apostle Paul and for the Lord Jesus Christ, worry is and anxiety are sins. I, I, I want you to understand that. I want me to understand that as well. If Paul is giving us a command, something that requires our obedience, it's because he believes that our disobedience to it is sin. 
Considering this command, uh, A.W. Pink says this, Worrying is as definitely forbidden as theft. This needs to be carefully pondered and definitely realized by us so that we do not excuse it as an innocent infirmity. Just like theft is commanded, prohibited among us from the scripture, we need to understand that on that same level, so is worry and anxiety. We are told not to. We are, uh, we are commanded, do not be anxious about anything. And the clear implication is that to worry and to be anxious about anything is sin. Are you hearing me? I, I don't want us to move forward without recognizing this. And I think the reason I'm making such a big deal about this is because I know my own heart, I know my own experience, and uh, I've been a pastor for a few years, so I, I have um, been able to observe some other people as well. And I'm, I'm confident that most of us don't see the severity of this problem, of this sin. Uh, I know that one of my favorite Christian authors agrees with me, Jerry Bridges. Uh, I love uh, his books and what he writes. And uh, I noticed that he listed anxiety among his catalog of respectable sins. Have you seen that book? He's come up with a whole book of sins that just totally fly under our radar. Sins that we don't even think are sins. They're just, you know, um, minor peccadilloes. But Jerry Bridges, um, he, he recognizes then that anxiety and worry are a part of what we would call respectable sins. They are sins nonetheless. And uh, I, I'm aware that my, even what I'm calling this in our heading here, the problem, I, I fear that that might even contribute to our downgrading of the notion that this is sin. I would have liked to have called it the sin, but that didn't start with a P, so that didn't really work. But just understand that what we're dealing with here is not just a problem. It's not just something that we need to work at. It's a sin. It's a sin that grieves the Lord. It's a sin that, that put Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's a sin that I believe many of us engage in with uh, much frequency and with very little regard for the fact that we are sinning. So how is it a sin to worry? Again, I think Jerry Bridges is very helpful. He helps us to understand two ways uh, out of many possible ways, but at least two ways that anxiety and worry are sin. First of all, it's a sin because it demonstrates a, a, a massive distrust in God. Oswald Chambers has called this uh, worry, he's called it unconscious blasphemy. We might not recognizing that, recognize that we're blaspheming God with our worry, but that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, it's blasphemy because worrying and being anxious about a particular situation is essentially saying, God, I, I don't think that you have this situation under control. I, I don't think that you've got this one. I don't think that you are sovereign over this. Uh, I, don't, I don't really trust that God knows exactly what he's doing in my situation here. And so I'm going to worry about it. Uh, we also might say, rather blasphemously, at least by our actions, while we're worrying and being anxious, is that I don't believe that God loves me. Or um, God doesn't care about me. He's not interested in what I'm going through. 
And all of those things are blasphemous because all those things are certainly untrue statements about God. One of the things that we try to do in our worry, through our worry, is to wrest control away from God so that we want to control our own situation and manage it because we don't believe that God's doing a very good job of it. Um, Not only is that very short-sighted about our own ability, but it's blasphemous about the true ability that God has to love and to control our situation. Now, another way that worry is sin is that it reveals our refusal to accept God's providence in our lives. In theory, it might be easy for us to mentally or verbally assent to the belief that God, yes, is sovereign, that he has uh, everything, every little thing in our lives mapped out from before the foundation of the world, and that he's working together everything, all things, together for the good of those who love him. We might be able to nod and say, yes, yes, amen. But when push comes to shove, when the rubber really meets the road in the situations in our lives, when that theory has to become practical, when God brings into our lives a particularly difficult providence, we don't accept it. And the indication that we don't accept it is that we spend our time worrying about it and being anxious about it, which is sin. Now, I can, I can maybe even hear uh, or see some of you uh, silently objecting to this. You might not object to it from Scripture, but you're thinking about your own life and your own situation, and, and you're thinking to yourself, well, I, I just can't help it. I'm a worrier. I'm a worrywart. That's just how I'm wired. That's just in my DNA. It's in my nature to worry. And I just want to assure you, if, if that is in fact you today, that I, I get that. I understand, I understand how you're feeling if you're thinking that. I understand that there are some people who for whatever reason, whether it's nature or nurture or whatever, they have more of a propensity to become chronic worriers. They seem to be given to this a lot more, and I totally get that. What I don't get, what I don't understand, is what makes that person, maybe it's you, what makes that person think that that gets them off the hook for worrying? The assumption seems to be that if we're born that way, or if we're wired that way, if, we're just, if that's just how we're constitutionally made up, then that's how we are, and there's nothing that we can do about it, or there's nothing even that we need to do about it. But that's not very good reasoning. That's pretty faulty reasoning for a couple of reasons. And the first reason is that the Bible teaches, it teaches us that all of us, by our nature, are sinners. And if we're not responsible for changing anything that's part of our nature, any sin that's part of our nature, then we're, we're not responsible for changing anything. We're all, by nature, sinful. And secondly, while it is true that all of us are sinful um, by nature in general, it is also true, I believe, that um, different ones of us have different propensities to sin in very specific ways. 
And so, um, for example, you might be more inclined to worry than I am, and I might be more inclined to alcoholism than you are. But again, uh, whether or not this has to do with our genes or our upbringings or our backgrounds or whatever, who, who knows? And the bottom line is it doesn't make any fundamental difference because uh, it doesn't get us off the hook. Whether it is or has become part of our nature, it doesn't matter. It's easy for us to say, I'm just a worrier, and think that that gets us off the hook. But can you imagine saying, if I was to say, um, all of those commands against drunkenness don't apply to me because I, I just, by nature, am attracted to alcohol and can't handle alcohol. And so that gets me off the hook. It doesn't make sense. It's faulty reasoning. And yet, it, 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 I'm even embarrassed to, to be going through this to say it, but I think I need to because we often say that about worry. It's in my nature to worry, and so uh, I don't need to listen to these commands about worry being sin and the prohibitions against worrying. So maybe you are, by nature, a worry wart. Maybe you're wired in such a way that you have propensity to be anxious, seemingly about the most insignificant things. And if that's true, you should be thankful that the Holy Spirit has allowed you to see into an area of your life and to clearly identify an area of your life that needs grace and needs uh, some work. That's a good thing. But you should definitely not think that your makeup gets you off the hook for obeying this command. Your nature, your DNA, doesn't give you a free pass to worry and to be anxious. Now, others of you, maybe you don't have a natural predisposition towards worry. You know, maybe there's certain people out there that don't seem to be phased by anything. You know, maybe they're the descendants of Alfred E. Newman. Um, maybe they're Jamaican. Uh, you know, maybe maybe the bulk of, of, of your life is just, you know, no problems, no problems. But you don't mind worrying about some of the really important things in life. Every once in a while, it's okay for you to worry because you're, you're worried about really important stuff. So maybe you don't get all frazzled worrying whether you're um, close enough to the front of the line for flat screens on Black Friday. You would never worry about something like that. But if your teenager is 10 minutes late for curfew and he's got the car, then it's okay to worry about that. And you're going to definitely worry about that. But Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Or to put this a different way, be anxious about nothing. How far does this prohibition go? It's all inclusive or all exclusive, depending on how you want to look at it. None of us are off the hook here. Both the chronic worrier and the casual worrier, who worries just about important stuff, are both indicted by this simple, simple command from the Apostle Paul. And we can't just write this off as an exceptional command, because as we've seen, this is a central teaching of Jesus Christ himself on the Sermon on the Mount. And he makes um, very similar points to what the Apostle Paul makes. That's in the red letter edition. Jesus himself says it. So we ought not to think that this is a minor thing and an unimportant thing. We are dealing here with the problem, rather the, the sin, of worrying. 
Now let's move to the second point, the prescription, because uh, I love this. Paul is a, a, a skillful surgeon, we might call him, and he's not content merely to expose the ugly sins in our lives and just go on and say good luck with that. But rather, the Apostle Paul remarkably gives us, gives us the tools and the thinking, the, the mindset and the encouragement that we need to root out the sin in our life. So even in this passage, he gives us the remedy for our anxiousness. And we can see this in the text. It's marked out by a little word, but, in the middle of verse 6. We've been told what we ought not to do, namely to be anxious. But now we're going to be told what to do instead in the place of worrying and being anxious. It says, do not be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So what's the cure? What's the prescription here for the anxiety and the worry that Paul gives us in this passage? Very simple. Nothing very profound here. Prayer. He says, do not worry, but pray. You could simplify it down to, to, to this. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. That's what the Apostle Paul would have us to do. Pray. And Paul here in this passage uses three different words for prayer. He says prayer, supplications, requests, depending on your translations there. And although there are three distinct words in the original, I think, it, I think it's probably not wise for us to you know, parse out each nuance of each of these words together. Because elsewhere in his letters, Paul uses these same words interchangeably. So I think rather what he's doing here is that he's giving us three um, similar words for the same thing in order to just hammer it home to us. He's saying, pray, pray, pray. I think it's a, a, a powerful thing that he does. That's the solution. Instead of being anxious about a situation, we're told, we're commanded to lay that situation before the Lord. And don't be afraid to ask for specific things. So the word request, even though I said I wasn't going to parse each of these, just notice though the word request carries with it the idea of bringing something, something that you're asking for, bringing that before God the Father and asking him to act. And I uh, believe that that is a point that, that many of us, I know this because it's a point that I need to know for myself. I think many of us are, are, uh, are I, I was about to say worried, but many, many of us uh, don't often pray with the type of boldness that we ought to pray with. Um, I, I understand that this is true, I think, uh, in my observation, with people uh, who are more doctrinally mature, people who are more mature in the faith and have a good understanding of the sovereignty of God. Those kind of people, we, we tend to, I believe, rob our prayers of power um, by, by trying to be so particular and so perfect, trying to parse our, our prayers perfectly, uh, and, and like I said, we rob them of power. And, and this is what I mean. Let me give you an example. In our church, on Wednesday nights at prayer meeting, we break up into small groups like we did here, um, and we pray in a group of 10, 10 or 12 or so. And, and one week, not too long ago, I was praying with a group of brothers and sisters, 
And we were praying for our young people, our teenagers, who were in another part of the church having their meeting. And I was praying um, for them, and I, I you know, caught myself um, praying that the Lord would save, and I started to say, say some of them. And the reason that I probably automatically was going to say that is because I understand that God is sovereign and that he has his elect and that it's highly unlikely in the grand scheme of things that God will have elected every single youth in our program. And so I'm going to just, I'm going to be realistic when I pray and say, Lord, please save some of these young people. But the problem is, and the reason I caught myself, is because that would totally rob my prayer of power. That's not my request. What I want to pray for boldly is that the Lord in his great kindness and mercy would save every last teenager in our church that night. And I uh, I, I was on the border of robbing prayer of power in order to be doctrinally and theologically correct, uh, so to speak. And um, another thing that I think we tend to do, especially among those who are mature and know more theology, is to tack on the phrase, if it be your will, in excess in our prayers. Now listen carefully, because I don't want to be blasphemous here. I understand that that's a, a right thing to do. But I really feel that sometimes we do that, again, in a way that robs our prayer of power. And so another time, I was praying with the same group. And I was praying that the Lord would miraculously uh, heal uh, our brother of cancer. There's a man in our church who has cancer. And uh, I, I wanted to pray, Lord, heal our friend Bud of cancer, dot, 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 if it be your will. And I think too often we run to that if it be your will in a way that we, again, rob our prayer of power. What I need to pray boldly to the Lord, I need to bring my request boldly to the Lord and say, Lord, this is what we desire. We want our brother to remain with us longer. We want his service in this church. We want his experience. We want his wisdom. Lord, save this man from cancer. And not run so quickly to the, if it be your will. We know that. We understand that God is sovereign and he may or may not heal our brother. But it is the burden of our heart. It is our desire to, uh, that this man would be healed. So what I'm saying, and again, don't, don't run to the nth degree with what I'm saying here. Just understand the heart of, of what I'm trying to get at. Don't be so spiritually and doctrinally paralyzed that you don't make specific and bold requests as a, as a cure for worry and anxiety. And what is our confidence when we lay our burdens uh, and requests on the Lord in prayer? Well, the Apostle Peter is very helpful in this respect. He helps us to understand that our confidence when we come to the Lord in prayer comes from knowing that God cares for us. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your cares, all your worries, all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And we need to understand this afresh. We need to understand that God loves us. He cares for us. And uh, we need to understand that through the practical action of prayer. That when we do pray, when uh, when we bring these burdens to the Lord, knowing that he cares for us, that that cuts the nerve 
out of one of the blasphemous ways that we worry and are anxious. Remember, we, uh, when we worry and when we're anxious, we unconsciously believe that God doesn't care for us, that God doesn't love us, that God doesn't know our situation, and if he does know, he's not interested in it. But by praying to God, knowing that he cares for us, we, t- we cut the nerve out of that blasphemous sin. We understand afresh that God does love us. He does care. <clears throat> does God care about the little things? I mean, the, the tiny little things that some of you who are wired this way worry about? Does God care about those? Are those types of things the things that you can bring to the Lord in prayer? And the answer to that is yes. Again, Corey Ten Boom is helpful. She once wrote this, Any concern that is too small to be turned into prayer is too small to be made into a burden. And there's no limit to what we ought to pray about. Notice the words that Paul uses. He says, but in everything. And that's pretty encouraging because his cure for our worry and anxiety perfectly matches the extent of the problem. We are told not to be anxious about anything, and then we are told to pray about everything. It matches perfectly, and it's a a complete prescription. Now, we mentioned just a minute ago that there's a second way that worry is sin, and it's that tacit admission that we don't accept God's providence in our lives. That situation that we're going through right now, that you're going through right now, if you're worrying and if you're being anxious about it, it's basically an admission to yourself and to anyone who's watching that you do not currently accept what God has currently brought in his providence into your life. Well, I believe that the direct refutation for that blasphemous way of thinking is also provided in this verse. Notice that there's something that ought to attend our prayers. We ought to pray with thanksgiving. And this is uh, appropriate for us to think about this week. That is the central to our prayers ought to be this attitude and this language of a deep and profound gratitude to God for who he is, for what he has done for us, what he has provided for us in Christ, for his love and his care and his concern for us, for the ways that he has provided for us in our past experience, for the ways that we have seen in the past his hard providence in our life, working together for our good. All of these things ought to go together to make us extremely thankful and to have us have that thankfulness inform and attend our prayers. So in the midst of very difficult situations and trials, the very same situations and trials where we'd be very, very tempted to worry, a very helpful exercise is to identify and to pray about the things that you can be thankful for in that particular situation. Now, brothers and sisters, we ought not to, this week, buy into the world's calendars. Uh, The world uh, has permitted us, you know, one day out of the year, it's happening this Thursday, they're allowing us one day for us to be thankful. Just as long as that we we have, like, real hazy notions of, of thankfulness. They don't want us to get real specific about who we're thankful to and what we're thankful for. Uh, and then immediately after that, they're, they're going to push us on to Christmas, and they'll, they'll want us to think about Christmas, but again, only in, in the most 
hazy and uh, diffuse ways possible. We ought not to buy into that timetable. We ought not to buy into uh, that pattern of thinking because Thanksgiving, the attitude of Thanksgiving ought not to be something that we just indulge once a year on a Thursday that our family gets together. But the scripture is very clear that thankfulness ought to be a constant pattern. It ought to be a situate, a state, a steady state of our soul that our soul is in constantly. And this thankfulness ought to inform everything that we do. It ought to inform how we look at our situation. And it ought to inform how we pray about our situation. Well, speaking of the world, the world's got all kinds of strategies for what to do if you're stressed, what to do if you find yourself being anxious and and worried about something. And so they'll say things like, you know, just watch some comedy, uh, do some yoga, you know, employ some deep breathing techniques, uh, journal about your feelings, uh, take some ginseng and milk thistle and go on a vacation. Maybe if it's bad enough, seek professional help. And the biggest problem with these is not that they're, you know, band-aid solutions and they're potentially expensive, although they're both of those things. But the biggest problem with these kind of um, prescriptions is that they are godless. They're godless. But if our worry and and our anxiety are sins, sins against a holy and righteous God, then our prescriptions ought to be God-centered as well. And the prescription is very simple. You don't have to go to the ends of the earth. You don't have to you know, contort your body into a downward dog. All you've got to do is pray. Pray, pray, pray. That's about as simple and sustainable as a solution as it comes, and it's not going to cost a dime. Now, very quickly as we close here, I want you to notice that Paul doesn't just stop there, even though he could stop there. He doesn't just identify the problem and then tell us how to fix the problem, uh, the prescription, but he moves on to something even further. He wants, us to get, he wants us to get a vision, a glimpse of the product. He goes on to outline the wonderful results that will follow if we are to employ and obey the strategy. And the product can be found in verse 7. He says this, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So the product is simply peace. That's what will come as a result of obeying, of confessing the sin of worry and anxiety, and rooting it out by praying. The incredible product that will result is a profound peace. And that's exactly what we want, isn't it? I mean, that, when we worry and when we're anxious, what happens is that our, our souls are just stirred up and they're, they're in turmoil. It's like the waves of an ocean that are just clashing and, and banging around inside of us. There's turmoil. What we desperately want is peace. And the beautiful thing is that that's what God gives us when we follow his way and his word. He is a God of peace. And this is the peace of God. That's great. That's really encouraging to know that the, the, the guy, the one who's giving this product is the God of peace. Peace is what God is all about. That, that's the reason that he has uh, sought after you and ransomed you 
and redeemed you. It's to make peace between uh, him and us by the blood of the cross. We were at enmity with God because of our sin, because of our rebellion. We were experiencing his, his wrath and his displeasure. There was, displeasure. There was uh, war between us. But God, by sending his son, has made peace with us. And God is not content just to make peace in the big thing, you know, making us right with him in terms of our sin. But God is also concerned with making peace with us in every area of our lives. He wants to give us a profound sense of peace in even in this, our experience of worry and anxiety. The product of prayer we see in this verse is the impenetrable peace of God. In the same way that Jesus Christ could speak with just a word uh, to, to angry winds and waves that were bashing against the, the boat that he and his disciples were in, he, he merely has to speak a word and instantly there's calm and stillness. Well, this, this same God is able to speak a word into our souls and to give our souls the, the peace that we so desperately need and, and long for. And I want you to just notice one other thing. The, the product, this, this peace, this product that we're after, it's not just something that will, you know, that will st- stem the tide and will just you know, stop any present worrying that we have, but it's also very preventative in nature. And so it has the power to prevent future worry and anxiety. Notice this from the text. The text tells us that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's exactly what we need. We don't just need something that will weed out the present and the current worry and anxiety in our life, but what we desperately need is something that will stand on guard when we do watch the news. And when we do open up the papers, when we do answer our cell phones, when we do visit the doctors and all the rest, we need peace to stand guard at the, at the doorways of our hearts and our mind to filter all of the information that comes in. We need peace just basically standing right on top of our eardrum so that when we hear bad news, if we're watching the news, uh, and that news comes into our ears, that before it travels down the ear canals and gets into our minds, we need peace standing there. Sorry to put this so simplistically, but, but I think you understand what I'm saying. We need, we need peace right there so that our minds and our hearts will be guarded before they can take that information and just run with it. It's a dangerous thing to watch the news. Even... I'll say this among friends, even, and maybe even especially, Fox News. You know, we, we just sometimes just turn off our filters uh, when we're watching a friendly uh, news broadcast because we think that we're good. But uh, it, might, it might surprise you to know that the business strategy for Fox News, as well as for any other news organization, is to have us worried and be anxious. That, that's good business for them when we're in that state of mind. And so we desperately need, when we're watching the news, when we're hearing the news, when we're looking at our own lives and our own family situations, we, we need, we need uh, peace to stand guard whenever we open up that cell phone and bad news start coming through the earpiece. We need the peace of God to guard our minds and our hearts in Christ Jesus. 
Now it's my prayer for myself, first of all, but also for you, my, my brothers and sisters here, that we together, that we would confess that the anxiety, the worry, the stress that we so regularly partake in is indeed sin, grievous to God, that we would confess it and repent of this respectable sin and that we would be quick to pray, that we would be quick to lay all of our cares and our burdens, all of the things that we, we would be tempted to take on ourselves and fret about, to give them to God, knowing that He cares for us and that the Lord would be pleased as a result to produce in us a deep and profound sense of peace, a peace that for anyone that's watching, unbelieving family members or coworkers, they just have no idea. They, they wouldn't be able to explain it. And you're not much help because you can't explain it either. You just have a, a peace that passes all understanding, a peace that is able to guard all of our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And that that peace would go on for his eternal glory and also for our, our good. So that's my prayer for all of us today. Again, thank you so much for inviting us here. It's been a joy to worship with you. Um, and I pray that the Lord would give us lots more of these opportunities in the future. Let's pray together as the worship team comes to lead us in a final song. Heavenly Father, we confess before you that we are warriors that we are anxious, that we often uh, even unconsciously blaspheme you by our worry, that we say things about you that are certainly not true. We say that you don't care for us and that you don't love us, that you cannot be in control of our situation. Lord, forgive us for this blasphemy. And I pray that we, by your Holy Spirit, would avail ourselves of the, of the remedy, of the cure, for this, and that we would pre- present all of our prayers and our petitions and our requests before you, knowing deeply that you love us and that you care for us and that you are in sovereign control of our lives. And then, Lord, we ask that you would give us this peace, the peace that passes all understanding, that will uh, serve to show the world, a watching world, that you are uh, in control, that you are a loving Heavenly Father and that they must be made right with you. We ask that you continue to bless our lives as we uh, go from here, and that your spirit would continue to convict and to enable us to avail ourselves of the precious promises of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we close this reminder from Matthew.